When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome. Um, if you've made it this far to review session number five, you are a trooper. Uh, and uh, hopefully you're you're getting something out of these. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, College Board Unit 5. If I have any class, then this is our Unit 3. So if you're looking for materials, uh, just keep that in mind. So uh, this is Unit 5 and this is Political Participation. And political participation, uh, we move through quickly, but it is a 20 to 27 percent uh, weight on your AP exam. So just, um, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily the fact that they're going to specifically pull a bunch of stuff from Unit 5. But I think there's a bunch of stuff in Unit 5 that kind of carries over or back into uh, the, the previous units that we talked about. So like the branches and, and can making connections with the branches of government and political parties, interest groups, and the fact that they try and influence those things. So this one uh, has a lot of stuff that is kind of some carryover or some linkage or whatever you want to call it to the previous ones. Okay. Uh, there is a lot of stuff to talk about with this one. So I am going to try and move quickly. Please know I do respect your time and I, I am trying to respect that. Um, by moving as quickly as possible, but also I want to cover the material uh, as in-depth as possible to get you, um, you know, the material you need. So uh, I'm, you know, the, just like the government balances civil liberties and all those sorts of things with, with independence and uh, freedoms and, and whatnot, um, I, I, I try and balance that out as well. Okay, so let's get rolling here. Uh, 5.1 is about voting rights and models of voting behavior. So first off, there's several amendments to be familiar with from here. Uh, 15th, 17th, 19th, 24th, and 26th. And the main thing to understand about these is how does it expand the opportunities to vote? How does it expand political participation? So first off is the 15th Amendment. That was the uh, right of all African-American males to, to vote. Uh, and this is obviously going to expand opportunities for political participation by including a whole new group of people uh, that are eligible and able to vote. All right. Uh, the 17th Amendment is the direct elections of senators. Remember, that is going to uh, replace the, the old method where the state's Congress would state legislature would pick uh, our senators. So. You know, we would have no say so other than our, our state elections. Uh, and that's going to expand uh, political participation by adding elections. So now we get to, to vote and pick our our senators. Ninth Amendment uh, is the women's right to vote. And this expands opportunity, expands the electorate by once again, just like the 15th did, uh, adding a whole new group of people that are able and eligible to vote. Uh, the 24th Amendment is going to eliminate the poll tax. You cannot uh, charge uh, or make people pay to vote. That's going to expand political participation by allowing more people. Hey, I don't have to pay to vote. Uh, let me I'll go do that now. Um, and then the 26th Amendment is going to give 18 uh, year olds the right to vote. And once again, just adding a whole new group of people that's eligible to vote. 
Um, and so all those things are going to contribute to political participation and expand those opportunities by either uh, expanding the electorate, uh, by including new groups, uh, new, new, new groups of people uh, to vote, by getting rid of barriers or by um, adding elections. OK, uh, the next part of that is the different voting behavior models. <clears throat> These are pretty easy. So uh, I'll run through them fairly quickly. But you got rational choice, retrospective, perspective voting and party line voting. Rational choice. Uh, this is when you go to the polls to vote. You vote based on what do you think is in your best interest. Some people do go to the polls and what's best for America. Other people go and, and think what's best for me personally. Who's going to do the most for me as an individual? Retrospective voting is taking a look at what uh, has happened <clears throat> Excuse me, in the past, you know, recent past, not like oh, in 1932, this party did this or this, you know, whatever. Uh, this is more, you know, in the last 10 years, what has this party done for me? What are the, what has this candidate done with their other time in power uh, in Congress or whatever it might be? So retrospective voting is just taking a look at the recent past <clears throat> for both candidates and parties. Perspective voting uh, is what most a lot of us do, and, and that is, what are the what's this party? What's this individual candidate going to do for me in the future? So if I do elect them, what what can I expect from them? What are they going to do? Uh, to help me, uh, it, it kind of ties into rational choice where you're, you're looking at people, uh, you know, is this person going to help me in the future? Is, is this platform that they're presenting that they say they're going to do when they get to, to office, how's it going to benefit me? And then party line voting, uh, this is where you support the party. Um, you know, you go to the, the poll and uh, you're, you're not looking for names. You're looking for what do they have by their name? Is it a D or an R? OK, uh, next thing is voter turnout. And uh, the first part is talks about structural barriers, political efficacy and demographics and how they can predict differences in voter turnout in the U.S. Uh, and uh, worldwide. So a little bit of comparative stuff here. Uh, first off, just you know, there's all kinds of barriers. I'm not going to get into the long list of barriers uh, and, and people can argue over what they consider a barrier. Uh, to voting, you know, from the poll tax to, to ID laws and all kinds of things. We're, we're not going to get into to all the, the specifics there. Just understand there are a number of structural barriers that are out there. Political advocacy is your belief that your vote counts. Okay, so me going and voting matters and, and, and I need to take part because of that. All right. Uh, and then demographics is just all the different breakdowns of, of people um, that we can look at. And there's a number of things we can look at. And people will make uh, best guess, you know, best guess efforts based on, you know, some of these demographic trends um, that we've seen in previous elections, whether it's race, sex, religion, uh, socioeconomic status, all kinds of things play into this. And there are people out there that will make, uh, you know, make a, a guess on if you're going to turn out the vote or not with where you fall in those demographic things. Uh, so, the, the things they want you to talk about here, national versus state controlled elections, voter registration laws or procedures, voting incentives or penalties or fines, election type. Um, so just very quickly, uh, national versus state controlled elections, uh, we, we deal with state controlled. So, but some places are national and it's going to affect the turnout. Uh, voter registration laws and procedures, those will fall under the structural barriers and how they could potentially impact voter turnout. Uh, obviously, if there's a high number of, you know, 
high level of difficulty to register or anything like that, that's going to, to impact uh, voter turnout. Voting incentives, penalties, fines, uh, you know, we don't have that, but worldwide there are places that do. Uh, and then election type, midterm versus presidential, we do have this, uh, and just more people turn out for the presidential elections. So 2020, 24, when it comes up, uh, 28, 32, well, 32 will probably be my last election I ever teach. Uh, I don't think I'll make it to the 34 one. I'm, I'm eligible to retire. Uh, in like 30, 31, I think. So uh, I could see myself being 32, the last one. Sorry, little moment of uh, just thinking about the, the time uh, versus the midterm. So we'll have a 2022 midterm coming up and the turnout is going to sharply decrease. All right. Uh, let's see. Demographic characteristics and political efficacy or engagement are used to predict the likelihood of whether an individual will vote. We just said that. Factors influencing voter choice include your party identification and ideological orientation. Uh, you know, that's going to play a role. Um, mainly it depends on, you know, how you think your candidate is going to do. I, do I need to show up and things like that? Uh, candidate characteristics, that's going to affect, you know, obviously Trump's characteristics were his biggest downfall. OK, uh, I'm not going to argue anything about his policies and things like that. But the guy was a toxic personality, must be honest. Um, and he turned a lot of people off just because of, of his actions and his words and things like that. Um, so candidate characteristics definitely play a role uh, in whether you're going to go vote for him or not. Uh, contemporary political issues, the issues of the day, uh, they we have some kind of you know, standards that we we have, but there's 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 things that change uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and then religious beliefs, affiliation, gender, race, all things we talked about earlier. OK. Uh, all right. Political parties is the next topic. And uh, I need you to understand that, that first off, one of the big overarching themes of this unit is linkage institutions. So how can me and you be linked to the the offices that are out there. Uh, and one of the ways is through political parties, you know, interest groups, elections, media, uh, all the stuff we're going to talk about later on in a few minutes. Uh, all these things link us to our, the offices that are out there, to our congressman, to our president, uh, and things like that. So, you know, if I call up my congressman, I call them up every day and I'm not getting a call back, I email them all the time, I'm not getting responses, maybe I go to the political parties. Maybe I go to the interest groups. Maybe I go to the media. I say, hey, I've been calling this person, I'm sending them letters. I get no response. You know, it's just a way to get to our uh, policymakers. Uh, the functions and impact parties on the electorate and government are represented by, all right, so there's a long list here, uh, mobilization and education of voters. So one of the big things that political parties is going to do is try and get people out to vote. Uh, you know, take a look at Stacey Abrams and her efforts here in Georgia. Uh, to get people uh, you know, registered uh, and out to vote. Uh, I, I don't know the, the specific numbers, but I know it was in the thousand. You know, I, I don't want to even quote a number, but it, it's a huge number of people that her and her organization were able to get out to vote. So that's what we're talking about there. Political, and I know she's an individual, but she's working for the Democratic Party. So to get people out to vote, to get people educated on the topics and the voting process and all that kind of stuff, something they do. Uh, party platforms, so the big national levels, the state levels, they all come up with their platforms. Um, and we'll talk about how that differs from the, the candidates in a few minutes. But uh, you know, there is an, an, a national democratic platform. There is a national Republican platform, some of the basics that they're gonna run on. Uh, candidate recruitment, parties are always looking for people to run. Uh, and and you know, whether it's, hey, this person's in the state legislature, let's, you know, 
move them up to the national stage uh, or, or whatever it might be. They're constantly looking for good candidates, people that can run, uh, that have your knowledge, the look and all that kind of good stuff that goes into being a candidate. Uh, campaign management, including fundraising and media strategy. We're gonna, Like I said, we're going to talk about the, the candidate versus the, the party in, in a few minutes. But regardless of how much we focus on the candidates, uh, the parties still play a role in your in, in candidates uh, election campaigns. And so they're going to help with, with strategy. They're going to definitely give money and pay for things. Uh, and, you know, that comes from fundraising uh, and then committee and party leadership systems and legislatures. So they, the important part here is the majority party controls the committees. And that's a huge deal because you get to make a lot of the decisions on the laws and the policy and the agenda and the direction that the country is going to go through those things. All right. How why political parties change and adapt? So parties have adapted to candidate-centered campaigns, and their role in nominating candidates has been weakened. All right, so the big thing here, we just we talked about just a few seconds ago, the fact that we have moved from, it used to be, hey, I'm the Democratic candidate. I'm the Republican candidate. Now it's, I'm such and such, and I am this, but focus on me. All right, candidates are at the center of the, the campaigns, uh, and, and they're going to drive, really, the, the election campaigns as the, the candidate themselves, not the party. So it's a reversal. Uh, the whole nominating candidates has been weakened, especially at the presidential level. Used to be that the parties were the only ones that picked. Me and you as citizens had no say-so in who the, the nominees were going to be for the president uh, and some of the other uh some of the other uh, offices, congressional offices. Nowadays, though, we have the, the the primaries and the caucuses that are going to allow us to pick our candidates. You know, if you paid attention to this last election cycle, <clears throat> the Georgia Senate seat, what uh, Leffler had held, that Warnock won. <clears throat> excuse me. There was a huge number of Republicans uh, that ran in there. there. There should have been a primary for that, and there there was the ability to have a primary, but they chose not to. So we have more of a say-so as citizens nowadays in picking our, the candidates that's going to run for office than used to. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, let's see. Parties modify their policies and messaging to appeal to various demographic coalitions. Um, and it's going back to those the things we make and the, the, the generalizations people make based on the demographics. Uh, parties are going to tailor their message to the people that they're talking to and, and where they're talking. Okay. Um, and that's all that's getting at. Uh, the structure of parties has been influenced by uh, critical elections, regional realignments, campaign finance law, changes in communication and data management technology. <clears throat> First up there, the critical elections and the regional realignments. This deals, you know, the, the critical elections are some of these elections that shift the, the congressional control, you know, where the Democrats control uh, to now the Republicans control. And we just, and it's almost a complete shift of the, the direction the country's going uh, with these critical elections and the regional realignments and, and when when there's changes are made and, and things like that. Uh, campaign finance law is the later part of this podcast. So we will uh, get to that in just a few seconds, a few minutes. Uh, but it's harder to, to, to fundraise. It's harder to, to spend money to an extent because there are campaign finance laws. Now, the parties can get as much money as they want to donate it to them. Candidates are limited how much you can donate to them. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that goes into, well, hey, I'm, we're going to spend on this. We're not going to be able to spend on that and things like that. Uh, and then changing the communication and data management technology. Just think about the, the advances we've had in the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, 
from you know just seeing stuff on TV and the radio to now there's internet ads, there's social media for the candidates. The candidates really drive, like I said, they drive their, most of the, the commercials are going to be, hey, pay for by this candidate uh, and things like that. Uh, and it's also used to, to really get people out to vote. You know, uh, social media plays a huge role in educating people and getting people out to, to vote, to understand the issues that are at hand, um, and, and, and really make a difference in, 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 in elections. Uh, next up is third party politics. Uh, not going to spend a great deal of time on this because we haven't really had a successful third party candidate in a long, long time. Uh, you know, Ross Pro is probably the, the last successful one, and he didn't even win any electoral votes. Uh, the main thing he did was took votes away from Bush. And, and, uh, the last uh, third party candidate to, to win electoral votes was back in the 60s, you know. So um, they don't have success. One of the main reasons they don't have success is because of our system. You know, we have the Electoral College. Uh, and you can debate the Electoral College amongst yourselves. We're not going to get into it. But uh, it's the proportional versus winner-take-all system. The winner-take-all is what 48 of our 50 states have. If you get just half of the, just over half of the, the popular vote, you win that state's electoral votes and you get them all. Versus the proportional, which is done by Nebraska and Maine, where they split them up. So if you win 20% of the vote, you get 20% of the electoral votes. Well, because we don't have that nationwide, there's really this barrier for third party candidates to find success because they're, they're not going to get the numbers they need to get over half of the, the electoral or the popular vote in these states. Um, the biggest win for a third party candidate is if they can run and if they can have some success and they can get the main party, the main candidates to take on some of their agenda, some of their issues. Perot. He didn't win anything, but he did get Bill Clinton to, to, to uh, take on some of his policies with taxes and uh, spending and things like that. That was his big thing. He, I know you don't know it, but he had all these charts and graphs and all that kind of stuff that he showed. All right. Uh, next up is interest groups and influence and policy. Remember, interest groups differ from political parties in that you'll never, never see an interest group uh, run a candidate. There's never going to be, hey, I'm from the the NRA and I'm running for president or anything like that. They, they want to influence Congress. They want to influence the president into making policies that help them. Political parties, they want to be the ones that are making all the policies. So they're concerned about the, this broad field of issues versus the interest groups, which are really only concerned about their one single issue. Okay. Um, they do some of the things that are similar though to political parties and then they educate voters, mobilize voters. They're, they're trying to get their, their people. The, 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 the difference is, whereas political parties are trying to educate you about all the issues, the interest groups are once again, just going to be concerned about that one specific issue. Uh, they go out, lobby politicians, specifically congressmen. They're not going to spend a great deal of time on the president, right? Because Congress is the one that makes the laws. Lobbying is where they will hire people, you know, there are lobbyists out there that have a profession as a lobbyist to go to Congress, to go to congressmen and try and convince them, hey, you need to do this to this bill. You need to kill this bill. You need to, to get this bill pushed through uh, and, and things like that. They will actually draft up legislation. Interest groups do make legislation. Then they just have to find a congressman that's willing to endorse it and present it. All right. Uh, and we talked about the mobilization of, of voters, uh, try and get agencies to do things 
uh, put pressure on them to either enforce laws or to look the other way. I should say look the other way, but uh, maybe be a little more lax on some of the laws that they see as not being necessary. Okay. Um, the Iron Triangle pops up again here. We, we already talked about it with Congress. Remember, interest groups are part of that Iron Triangle with the congressional committees and with the interest groups. And remember, it's just that relationship that they have. Interest groups, they're looking to influence the congressional committee members because they're the ones that are going to make a difference on the laws and policies that are being created. They look to have a relationship with the agencies that are going to be enforcing those laws because they're the ones that are going to be enforcing it and they want it to be enforced in specific ways. Okay. Uh, interest groups are impacted by inequality of political and economic resources. Uh, so you know, there are the haves and the have-nots among interest groups. It's just the way it is. There are some large interest groups that dominate uh, unequal access to decision makers. It goes back to that inequality. Uh, typically, the more money you have, the more access you're going to have. It's just it's, it's one of those things we have in our system. The free rider problem. Interest groups cannot stop people from benefiting from their issues. You know, if if an environmental group somehow gets the the air to be cleaner, they can't stop me from breathing it, even though I didn't contribute to their their uh, interest group. Okay, but if they get some policy passed that cleans up the air and makes more healthier, whatever it might be, they can't say you can't breathe that air. Alrighty. Uh, let's see, groups influencing policy outcomes. Uh, you've got single issue groups, ideological, social movements, and protest movements from. Uh, form with the goal of making and impacting uh, policy making. So single issue groups are those one issue groups, NRAs, gun control, or, or uh, gun gun rights, uh, ideological, social movements. We, we're seeing a lot of this stuff uh, with the, the movements that are popping up um, all over the country resulting from some of the, the issues that we have today. Uh, you know, we won't get into all of them that are out there. There's a ton of them. I'm sure most of you are familiar with them if you just watch the news or social media. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, competing actors such as interest groups, professional organizations, social movements, military, bureaucratic agencies, influence policymaking, such as the federal budget process, a key stages in the varying degrees. That goes back to the lobbying and the fact that these interest groups want to affect all these things. They want to affect policy uh, at the agency level. They want to affect uh, congressional markups on the bills and the laws and, and that sort of stuff that's coming through. Uh, all of them play a role. Okay. Uh, and, and what this is getting at also is that interest groups don't just mean the interest groups that we typically think of, NRA, uh, World Wildlife Fund, Sierra Club, uh, pro-choice, pro-life groups and things like that, but it's also some of the agencies as they have to put their best interest forward uh, to congressional members for the, for the budget items and things like that. Uh, elections of political parties are related to major policy shifts or initiatives occasionally leading to political realignments of voting constituencies. Uh, the, these things lead to changes, basically. Uh, you know, there, there's both sides have recently said elections have consequences. Uh, and you know, it can, they do. And, and they can, the elections can cause shifts um, that, you know, realign uh, and, and I don't want to say well, they do. They can lead to changes. All right. Obviously happening. All right. The next two are electing, electing a president and congressional elections. Um, so first up is presidential elections. And uh, we're looking kind of overall here. The impact of federal policies on campaigning and electoral rules continues to be contested by both sides of the political spectrum. And then we get into the essential knowledge here. The process and outcomes in U.S. presidential elections are impacted by, and we have a number of things here. 
First off is the incumbency advantage, and this is something that we'll talk about with congressional elections as well. But typically, the incumbent does have an advantage, okay, uh, because of name recognition. At the presidential level, it's a little bit different, uh, and I don't feel like the, the incumbent has as much of an advantage because people are so well known today when they're going to run for office. So it's not like there's very many people out there that's going to run for the presidency and they're just going to come out of nowhere and people go, oh, who's that running against uh, Joe Biden? You know, we don't know that person. You're going to have an idea of who's running and you're going to, they're going to have some, some kind of background and be recognizable. So I think the incumbency advantage is somewhat muted uh, at the presidential level. Now, the congressional level, it's a huge thing. It's a huge deal. OK, uh, open and closed primaries, open uh, and closed primaries, uh, open primaries. I repeat myself there. Open primaries. These are primaries where anybody can go vote. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, you can go vote in the Democratic primary. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, you can vote in the Republican primary. OK, uh, closed primaries, you have to be affiliated with the Democrats to vote Democrat. You have to vote Republican to vote Republican. The fear for open primaries is that the other side will come in and vote for the worst candidate. So Republicans would go in and vote for Chris Daniels as the Democratic primary uh, Democratic candidate, even though he's the worst candidate. Republicans feared that Democrats would come and vote for Chris Daniels as the Republican candidate because he's the worst candidate. So there's that fear. That's why they have those things. Uh, caucuses. Only a couple states do this. And I've told you many times I would not take part in the political process if the caucuses were um, be, to be what Georgia does. OK, uh, this is where you're going to go meet in an auditorium, you know, uh, the gym or something like that. And you're going to have to spend basically all day, uh, maybe not all day, that might be you know, overstating it, but you're going to spend a great deal of time listening to people talk about the candidates and you're going to make decisions. You're going to sit with the different groups that you want to vote for. So uh, it's a long process. Um, there, there's less turnout for caucuses than there are regular primaries. And like I said, only a few states have those things. Uh, party conventions, party conventions used to be a huge deal. Uh, now it's just more of a cheerleading uh, deal. The, we know going in because of the, the primaries and the caucuses, who's going to be the candidate. Um, so the party conventions aren't as big a deal as they used to be. Now it's just a, a couple of days worth of, hey, this is the candidate. This is why I need to go vote for. Uh, general presidential elections. Um, these, um, there's a huge turnout for the presidential elections. We, I mean, that's the main thing to understand there is that uh, people are going to show up to vote in the, the general elections. OK, uh, and then the Electoral College. Obviously, this plays a role in candidate campaigning uh, because you need to, first off, focus on the states that are going to be battleground states. And those are those states that are toss ups. Uh, and there's several of them throughout the electoral map. Um, you don't have to spend a great deal of time in some of the states that you know are going to vote red or going to go vote blue. All right. And it goes for both ways. If you're a Republican, you're probably not going to spend a great deal of time in, in California. You want to campaign out there because there are still Republicans out there, but uh, it's probably going to vote blue. OK, uh, just like if you're a Democrat, you're you're going to go to Alabama, but it's probably going to vote red. All right. Uh, but you want to go you know, because you got to. All right. Uh, so it, it, the Electoral College really factors into how people are going to campaign, where they're going to go uh, and vote and things like that. All right. The winner take all allocation of votes already talked about that. So I'm not going to spend a great deal of time. But just remember that 48 of our 50 states do have winner take all where they are going to um, vote. Um, if you get over 50 percent, you get all the votes. OK, so Nebraska and Maine are the only two that do proportional. All right. Congressional elections. 
the uh, same deal here. Uh, we're just talking about you know how uh, congressional elections have changed and some of the advantages that are out there. Now, I said the incumbency advantage is a huge incumbency advantage is a huge deal on the congressional side because you have that name recognition. There are people that will come out of left field and run against people. All right, uh, but at the end of the day, they are at a huge disadvantage because no one knows them. Okay, so there, you know, when you go to the polls in 2022, there will be people on that ballot. You're like, who is this? I've never heard of this person, uh, but I know this person because they they're the incumbent, and so it's a huge advantage. Uh, on the House side, it's around 90 percent, and that that number is a couple years old, but it's it's still pretty up there uh, for the incumbents to typically win. On the Senate side, it gets a little bit lower at the 70 percent number, but still a huge advantage for congressional elections. Uh, open and closed primaries, same deal as the presidency. You know, you've got the, the open versus the closed. I just talked about it. I'm not going to talk about it again. Caucuses, same deal. Uh, and then the general elections, presidential versus midterm. Uh, if you're running in a midterm election, just understand the turnout's not going to be as great. Okay. People turn out to vote for the president. They don't turn out as much for the, um, what you call it, the uh, the congressional elections. I would argue that the congressional elections are much more important because they're the ones that make the laws. Uh, the president, yes, he, he guides the country and, and there's been a lot of responsibility put on the president. But at the end of the day, the president doesn't make decisions uh, on laws other than he's going to veto them, he or she's going to veto them or not. And it's just, uh, I don't know, people need to realize that these state elections and the congressional elections hold a lot more importance than really the presidential election. OK, but once again, that's my opinion. Maybe you feel the president's most important one. Uh, that is your choice. All right. All right. Moving on to mod moving on to modern campaigns uh, and campaign finance. And we'll, we'll be close to wrapping this thing up as the media is a very short little thing. Uh, modern campaigns, the impact of federal policies on campaigning and electoral rules continues to be contested by both sides of the political spectrum. So that's the big theme here with these campaign things is, is how. Uh, Basically, the policies that have been created to control the money supply and things like that. Uh, so the essential knowledge is the benefits and drawbacks of modern campaigns are represented by dependence on professional consultants, rising campaign costs and intensive fundraising efforts, duration of election cycles and impact of and reliance on social media for campaign communication and fundraising. So first off, the dependence on professional consultants. Uh, there, the people that were running for office, especially the higher up you go, presidency, congressional offices, they have a huge staff and they have people that are telling them this is what you need to do. This is what you need to, to talk about. These are the issues. They have professional pollsters. We talked about that in the, the last podcast. Uh, there are just there. there's a, if you want to be a professional campaign manager, that's an option for you. I mean, there are there there there's a job there's a role for you uh, if you want to do it. Uh, the rising campaign costs and intensive fundraising efforts. This is a grind, okay? Um, and and so is the duration of election cycles. Just to run at the national level, there is a huge cost associated, uh, and you have to raise a ton of money. You know, we've talked about how much the the candidates raised in the last couple of presidential elections. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton raised over a billion dollars. I haven't seen a final Biden number, but I'm pretty sure it's high up there. Um, and, and just the it, it, it's a, an enormous amount of money, and it gets spent. It gets spent on ads, travel, staff, all those sorts of things. Um, and, and you have to to grind through a lot of those fundraising efforts to get people to give you that money. Okay, the duration of election cycles. Uh, as soon as the 2020 election was over, 
there were people considering running uh, for the president in 2024. There, there are people out there that are putting together staff, putting together, you know, looking at numbers, can I have success and things like that. So it, it is, it's almost never ending at this point. Um, there are people that are going to be running for house seats. The house is the biggest grind because you're running every single two years. You, you don't get a break almost from the election cycle. So uh, that, you know, I, I, if I had to pick between the Senate or the House, I definitely want to be a senator because at least you get six years uh, there. So you get somewhat of a break. But it is a long grind of a cycle. Uh, and then the impact of reliance uh, on social media for campaign communication fundraising. Um, you, we see this with, with almost every candidate. There is a they have some kind of social media presence. OK. Uh, and they are, are pushing out uh, items. Uh, for people's consumption. All right, campaign finance. Uh, this is probably one of my least favorite topics <clears throat> is campaign finance. Um, so I'll try and explain it as best I can. Uh, if you have questions specifically, please you know, let me know. All righty. Um, there has been a move from since 1972 to really kind of even the playing field when it comes to campaign finance. Um, and it started, like I said, back in 1972. The thing you need to know, though, is the um, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, uh, otherwise known as the McCain-Feingold Act. And it looked to, to revise and make some changes to the uh, to what had been reformed in 1972. In 1972, they looked to make some stipulations with hard money, soft money, and put some other regulations on on the money uh, that that's out there. Okay, uh, hard money is that money that is very regulated. You know, if you give it to a a, a, a candidate, they have to, to keep track of it, and things like that. Soft money goes to the parties, and soft money is is that unregulated money that can just go in, in whatever. Uh, the main thing in the standards about the, the McCain-Feingold Act. <clears throat> was that they made an attempt to ban soft money and they wanted to reduce attack ads. Okay. So that's why if you watched any political ads and, and in Georgia, you know, we were bombarded by, especially during the, the runoff, um, we were bombarded. They, the, the ads that were from the, the, the parties that were from the, the, uh, the candidates, they said, Hey, paid for by, or, you know, I'm such and such. And I support this message. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the big, Supreme Court case for this one is the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. And just the backstory real quick. We did this in the first one where we talked about the cases. Um, this is where Citizens United was a group. They were looking to make, they did make a movie about Hillary Clinton uh, back in 2008, I think it was. And um, they were stopped because they were taking money from businesses, corporations, people, groups like that. And they're going to fight it. They're going to. That's why it's the Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission. It's because they're saying, "Hey, we can take money from who we want to." You know, there's nothing wrong with with any of that. And uh, the Supreme Court's eventually going to get it. There's a lot more to this case. I'm just in in for time purposes. Um, the Supreme Court ruled that political spending by corporations by businesses is a free speech thing. And so it's protected under the First Amendment. And so if you get a question about Citizens United stuff, just know it's about campaign finance and know the Supreme Court ruled and stated that these corporations, these businesses, these unions, uh, all these kinds of things, they're spending on these campaigns, <clears throat> excuse me, is a protected form of speech. OK, uh, let's see. 
Debates have increased over free speech and competitive and fair elections related to money and campaign funding, uh, including contributions from individuals, political action committees, and political parties. So that goes back to the Citizens United case. Is the, the money that you spend a free speech thing? Okay, so should you be able to spend as much as you want to? Um, the, just real quick, what PACs are. Remember, the political action committees were created to get around some of the campaign finance laws. Oh, I can only donate $5,000 to a candidate. Okay, but I have 10000 so I'll donate 5000 directly, and then I'll give the other 5000 to this political action committee over here who will then donate it for me. And they've since been regulated, and so we've had the birth of super PACs. We've had the birth of 527s. All these things are ways to get around some of the reform efforts. Okay. All right. Last topic here is the media. And this is a quick one. Um, the media is supposed to be a linkage institution. They're supposed to give us uh, information on uh, you know, the politicians that we might not get otherwise and, and make us aware of, of issues and, and things like that. Uh, so let's go through the standards real quick. Uh, first one is the traditional news media, communication technologies, advances in social media have profoundly influenced how citizens routinely acquire political information including news events and such and such and such. Uh, the big thing to understand here is that the traditional news media is a dying thing. You know, newspapers used to be the way we got our, our, our news, and it's they're, they're going away. And it went to TV, radio, and things like that. And now we've gone to more, hey, I can get my information from the, the Internet. I can get my information from blogs. I can get my information from social media, Twitter, Facebook, all those places. So um, there's just the shift from the traditional media that we used to know, or at least I used to know, uh, to the social media, okay? Uh, the media's use of polling results to convey popular levels of trust and confidence in government can impact elections by turning such events into horse races based more on popularity and factors other than qualifications. All right, so because of the 24-hour news cycle, the media needs something to talk about, and sometimes they'll throw out their, their polls, and those polls can impact elections. If they show a poll and they show a candidate that's up by 20, 20 points, do I need to go vote? You know, and so that could, if enough people say that, whether it's for their candidate or for the other candidate, that impacts not those off the numbers because of enough people say, hey, I don't need to go vote because it's such a huge swing uh, or uh, such a huge deficit. That, that, that impacts it. Okay. So they can do that. The horse race thing is where they're covering uh, the top of the polls. You know, especially when we're talking about primaries and there's 15, 20, 25 people running for president. Uh, or something like that, they really only cover the top. So it, it, it does, you don't get coverage down at the bottom. All righty. Uh, and then finally, the last couple of things here, um, political participation is influenced by a variety of media coverage, analysis, commentary on political events. That does play a role. Uh, and I think you know this, uh, you know, the, the media provides basically free campaign uh, coverage, okay, for candidates. And so uh, you know, they're putting news stories out there about individual candidates that's that's coverage for them that's and sometimes it's not negative all right so that's not good uh for a candidate but uh it's still their names out there in the news uh let's see rapidly increasing demand for media and political communication outlets from an ideologically diverse audience have led to debates over media bias and the impact of media ownership of partisan news sites so just remember the media is out there to make money uh, and that's why you see the CNNs and the Fox News of the world that are left and right leaning because that's their base. That's who makes their pays their checks. Uh, and then finally, the nature of democratic debate and the level of political knowledge among citizens is impacted by increased media choices. Uh, we have a wide variety of places to get our news from. 
you know, from the news outlets to social media to blogs to individuals. There's just all kinds of places we can get our knowledge from. Uh, ideologically oriented programming. If you're right-leaning, you're going to watch one set. If you're left-leaning, you're going to watch the other. Consumer-driven media outlets and emerging technologies that reinforce existing beliefs. We go out and find what we want to find, basically. Uh, we, we find the news stories that we want to find. Uh, and then uncertainty over the credibility of news sources and information. Uh, check them, always. Um, I can't say this enough. Check your sources before you post stuff. I have had to call up so many relatives that have posted stuff and i mean like, that's a joke message that's not a true true statement so just check your sources when you're you're posting stuff and whatnot. all right guys i went way long there and i do apologize for going so so long on this one uh, but i did want to like i said get you the information okay we got two more uh we'll do the civil liberties and civil rights stuff at our release on uh, Wednesday, and then the FRQ stuff will release uh, a little later, just so you know what you're going to be expecting. Guys, as always, if I can help you, if you have questions, please contact me, email coachd underscore 1977 at uh, The school email is also available. Uh, if you uh, have me on remind, feel free to text me. I will respond as quickly as possible. Uh, I promise, as long as I'm not sleeping, I do go to bed early. And I'm getting old. Or if you want to contact me on Twitter, uh, K Daniels, AP Gov, I'll be happy to respond to you there as well. Guys, uh, take care. Uh, let me know if I can do anything for you. And I'll see you later.